Welcome to part two of a two-part series on understanding whiteness. If you haven't yet listened to episode 25 with Tad Hargrave, I recommend giving it a good listen before diving into this one. Today I'm talking with Michael Welp, who is the co-founder of an organization called White Men as Full Diversity Partners, or WMFDP.com. If you're interested in learning more about how white people, and particularly white men, can empower themselves in support of a more conscious, equitable humanity, this is for you. If you identify as a white person, listen in to learn about how becoming a diversity partner actually makes your life better as well. This is the Super Givers Podcast. Totally. Well, let's actually just start there. I'd love for you to introduce us to the name White Men as Full Diversity Partners. Can you describe really what that means? Sure, Jesse, and thanks for thanks for having me here. And it's it's uh, it, the name of our company is you know as I've found in describing it on an airplane to somebody. You know, you they say, "What do you do for a living?" And I'm like. Well, um, I, I could either describe a vaguely, well, I'm a leadership development consultant, or I could say more specifically, I'm the co-founder of a consulting organization called White Men as Full Diversity Partners. And, you know, three quarters of the time, that's like the end of the conversation right there, <laughs> because people just hear the words white men and they stop and they don't hear anything else, even if it's full diversity partners. It's like, it's just a, it's an oxymoron for folks. And um, it has to do with, you know, the white men as a group, we're not usually focused on around diversity. And so it's it just is a disconnect and um, stuff. So there's usually it has a bunch of Velcro in the name. People are really curious, maybe confused about it. Um, There's a lot of um, confusion and, and curiosity about it, but it's it's really is what it says. It's it's like we are specializing in helping white men particularly find our part in terms of what are our blind spots and what are the opportunities for us to be better allies with women, with people of color, um, with GLBT and others, and, and particularly what's our work as white men to do with each other around creating more inclusion in and out of work. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and as you predicted, I'd love to just kind of give some depth to how you came as, as a white, you would identify as a white man yourself. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, you've been doing this work for a long time as I, as I understand what's what's your, your personal journey towards understanding whiteness. Mm-hmm. Well, and so you would ask that question, you know, would you, do you under, do you identify yourself as a white man? And I would say for many years, no, growing up in, um, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Iowa and, uh, I went to college there and then I went up to, um, Northern Minnesota to lead dog sledding and canoe trips for outward bound for about seven years. And it wasn't until I went to grad school in Washington, DC, which I went originally just to become a better facilitator. And I, I was totally surprised by all the diversity learning I had there. And it was an intense cohort for two years. And we had a lot of intense conversations about race and gender. So that is when I really realized, okay, I am a white man. I am a group of white men. And I didn't even have to think about that because it's kind of the norm. I just get to be an individual. And so I grew grew into that awareness um, in that part of my life, you know, in around 1990. And about that time, uh, Nelson Mandela was just released from prison, and I was curious about all that going on in South Africa, and I actually got a job in Lesotho at Outward Bound, facilitating interracial team building for miners, banks, pharmaceutical companies. As an Outward Bound instructor, people would come from South Africa into this little um, all-black, almost all-black country in South Africa, and it was off apartheid soil, and it was you know, eight days of blaying each other up rock climbs and discovering um, how they would work on the same shifts on the mines, but never eat together, never drink together, never sleep in the same rooms and be segregated. And they were all doing the opposite during this week. And it was a very powerful learning. Initially, I was like, this is a really fascinating group, particularly all the tribal groups of of men in the mines and men and women in the banks and stuff. And then over time, Jesse, it took me a few months, but eventually I'm like, you know, these white guys here from South Africa are really good guys one-on-one. They're part of an oppressive system. And yet they're really similar to me. They're not really that different than me. Um, 
not necessarily aware of how everybody's conforming to their system and in charge. And so I felt compelled in that year over there in South Africa to come back to the U.S. and work with people like me, other white men. And um, so I came back and I started researching. I actually did a dissertation about this whole topic. It's like, how do white men learn about diversity in their lives? What triggers our awareness? I was partly curious, what's next for me? And uh, what is this? What What's the path to help other white men in this process? And so I, I studied eight men around the country who did this work full time. And I, you know, I studied what was their life like growing up? What did they, and they all had different experiences. But one of the things that was really clear was that every one of them learned all, most everything they knew about diversity from women and from men and women of color or gay or lesbian colleagues and others. And they did not look to any other white men especially straight white men as a source of learning. In fact, many of them disconnected from white men and were kind of angry at our own group. Hmm. So that, that felt unsustainable, you know, cause here at the top of many corporations, there's a huge amount of white men as the majority overwhelming and it's not sustainable to say, okay, you women, people of color, you need to educate all the white men. So Bill Proudman is another colleague of mine from an outward bound background. And he, he said, well, let's try an experiment. Let's take white guys and let's put them in the room for four days and let's focus on ourselves instead of the dominant focus always being, what's it like to be women? What's it like to be people of color? Let's turn the mirror on us and say, what do we know about what it means to be white and be male? And for many of us heterosexual and how is that a different experience in the world than others? And so he was bold in doing that. And I just finished that dissertation and we ended up partnering and continuing to do that. And that first caucus was 20 years ago where we had that experience. Right. And I'm so curious about how you as a leader walk that, I mean, maybe it's not a fine line, um, but how you, how you step into that space as a white man in power, whether it's leading a group, a diverse group in uh, South Africa, like you mentioned, or in doing this work, um, because like, how do you do that and not just become another unconscious reiter mm -hmm. reiteration of patriarchy? Great question. I mean, I think I end up doing some of both, Jesse, because I can't help but have layers of unconscious bias in the world I've been seeped in where I still act out, whether it's, you know, whether you want to call things white supremacy or unconscious bias, 80% of whites in the U.S. have an unconscious bias against blacks. And 50% of blacks do in terms of the measured unconscious bias tests, you know, that are in the Harvard negotiation project implicit bias test. But so I own that I have that stuff in me, even if I've been doing this work for 20 years. And if I waited to be somehow pure and perfectly eliminate all my bias, I would still not have started this work. And so I have to own my humanness. I have to own the white male part of me, which includes continuing to have both insights and blind spots. And I need to have other guys like you and others who are willing to challenge me and each other on those blind spots. And so, hey, you see the interactions with me at work and you see me acting out something that I'm not aware of. I want you to challenge me on that. And by the way, I don't want it to have to be the women that have to challenge me on gender stuff or the folks of color. Well, let's do that for each other. And that's how we can, you know, use our group as white men to um, create a different way of being. It's interesting. It's, it's sort of, it sounds like you're saying if white men can step into this intentionality with each other, I'm guessing it takes some of the emotional labor off of these other groups that have been carrying it, you know, yeah. through eternity, right? <laughs> yeah. Emotional labor is a good word for it. I think of it as a burden. Um, to have to be the educators. And then when a person of color does say, well, actually, I'm dealing with this and this and this at work, sometimes white men will unconsciously say, well, that's not been my experience. And maybe you just need to try a little harder. And we just invalidate that person's reality or discount it without necessarily even knowing that. And so um, then they're like, well, I'm not going to share the next three examples that I have on the tip of my finger from the last week. So, um, yeah, I think the, the way 
uh, I don't know. You know, you you probably experience the way men and white men can banter with each other, and we can joke. And there's times when men um, objectify women and talk to talk about women as a way to bond with each other, whether it's in a fraternity or other things. So there are things that men do to bond with each other, and we can just as well be doing things that are inclusive for others as opposed to bonding by being exclusive to others. And so it's bringing the awareness to that and helping challenge ourselves to shift to be better men. I love that. I'm wondering if you can back up to this concept of unconscious bias, which I would love for more of um, at least people in the U.S. to be aware of, because we get so down um, a dark limiting spiral when when we use terms like racism which end up to a lot of people seeming like sounding like a binary term, right? Like we, we all carry unconscious bias of, of mm-hmm. some sort, whether it involves race or something else. So I, I, I would love for you to break down just some basics for people, especially white men who might be listening, who don't have to, if they don't have to wear the weight of calling themselves a racist, how can they maybe start to look at, unconscious bias that they may not be able to see yet? Like, what are some of those examples? How can Mm -hmm. it be a little more palatable, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the thing about the word racism is um, whites, you particularly often uh, presume there's an intentionality about it. And and, and usually um, in the concepts of unconscious bias, there's there's clearly an unconscious part of your brain operating. There's no intentionality around your bias, right? And it's you know it's partly called unconscious bias because it's hidden. Right. It's in it's inflexible. It's not flexible because it's hidden. And so, you know, I think we do need to kind of get over a little bit of the worry of being tagged a racist. And um, a lot of us hear that term as only it only applies if you're an active racist going out of your way to you know exclude people or be mean just like homophobia and stuff and there's a whole continuum around racism as well as unconscious bias between passive and active and yes. so um i actually avoid dis- discussing the terms racism and other cuz it turns out to be a heady argument and a lot of this learning about dif- differences in how we interact with race and gender we really need to understand it at the heart level. And what's the impact of this? People of color are not trying to argue about our intent. They are trying to get across what's the impact for them to be in systems that have differentiated treatment where they're having to deal with and navigate people assuming they got their job because of affirmative action, um, not even knowing where some of them can go and get their haircuts in a small town that's predominantly white and and on and on and on. And, you know, the assumption that if a bunch of people of color gathered at work, they're not talking about work. And they often, often hear that versus a group of white folks are never assumed often to not be talking about work. It's like a lot of little things that are paper cuts that just continue to add up and add up. So we define um, some of aspects of unconscious bias by, you know, some of it is your your uh, associations with stuff. And it's like, you know, it's actually some of the studies I just mentioned that resume, the resume study. Um, you know, where you take a black sounding name and a white sounding name and you send the same resume to a corporation that has one of the best reputations for diversity in the country. And if it's got a black sounding name, it generally will get 50% less callbacks than a white sounding name. It's the same resume. And so there's not an intentionality around that in the system. There's similar biases around gender. Um, there's uh, biases across the world in insider-outsider groups. So a Swedish in Sweden, a Swedish-sounding name um, is gets half as many callbacks as a, as a Middle Eastern-sounding name in Sweden, too. So it's not unique to the U.S., but it's unique to where who are the insiders and who are the outsiders predominantly. And in the U.S., it's whites. We are more of the insiders. We are more of the leaders in organizations, you know, we're, we're who others are mentoring and everybody. And unconsciously, we're often mentoring people to be like us and act like us as well. So I wonder if you could talk, speak to some of the, the, the experience you have, the approaches you take to 
I imagine it's it's dissolving some of the, or at least like bringing some awareness to white men around insider outsider unconscious bias. These concepts, like, what does it look like? Well, you know, we created this session, this four-day session um, 20 years ago called the White Men's Caucus, the full name, White Men's Caucus on Eliminating Racism, Sexism, Homophobia in Organizations. And so it's about three and a half days, and it's really sitting in a circle of chairs with about 20 men and no tables, and we're doing exercises, we're watching videos, we're doing things that are tweaking our awareness and getting us to think about, well, what what does it mean to be um, a white male? Do we have a culture? You know, a lot of times we'll think culture is something other people have, you know, so we may look at some popular film clips from different movies and say, what do you see in terms of how the white men interact? And they may see some bantering. Then people may see, you know, people not showing much emotion, focusing on action and fixing things and all the doingness that has value as opposed to being. And, um, we start to see that we actually do have a culture and it's very similar and overlapping what a lot of people think of as American culture or dominant business culture, because those were all, a lot of those systems and organizations were founded by white men. And so, um, you know, but to be a white male means we typically identify more as a rugged individualist, which is part of our culture, individualism. We don't see ourselves as part of a group, uh, we are afraid if we're seen as a group, we're going to lose our individuality or our individual identity as opposed to how can it be a both and? How can I be unlike anybody on the planet and see how being white male and having part of that culture um, affects how I see the world and how I act in the world and things? You know, as you're speaking, I'm recalling what, you know, the 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 guest um, in, the, in part one of this series, Tad Hargrave said mm-hmm. about about how he sort of like conceptualizes whiteness, and he was speaking about how it's to him less about skin pigmentation, and it's more about when somebody steps into the privilege of being, in, in your terms, in the inside group, and that was pretty mm-hmm. that was pretty mind blowing to me because his. You know, like I said, his background is is largely in in this in the study of Celtic and, and Gaelic history, and understanding that um, many of these cultures were not white in the way that white has become a social construct. And mm-hmm. I I just curious to know your thoughts on that and and what you might add to that theory. Hmm. Yeah. No. I think I think we. Um, you know, one guy who's a mentor of mine, Bob Terry, said to be white is to not have to think about it. You know, just by definition, I don't have to be conscious of what it means to be white. You know, people of color, you know, often have to be conscious of their race and the impact of that. And, you know, is this interaction going this way partly because of a factor of race? Is this interaction? Did that just happen to me? Did I just get ignored? You know, there's a in some cases a, a, a black vice president is married to a white woman in some of the corporations I work with, and they're joking about in New York City, he'll wave, try to wave down a taxi. He won't get stopped by, mm. he won't get a taxi to stop, including black taxi drivers. And in a moment, his white wife steps up to the curb and waves. She gets a taxi stopped immediately, you know. So the the way that, you know, you could say that race is invisible. Race, race is actually a, a social construct because so much of our DNA is the same. And um, they actually say there's more variance in DNA within race than across race. But it's a social construct and the impact of race is very real. So whiteness, um, the impact of being white, the impact of not being white um, plays out very significantly in our society. Um, And it's not the only factor that is determining, you know, how people are treated. But to to minimize it and say it doesn't play out at all, um, and a lot of us from a clear place of intent might say, I don't see race, I don't see gender, I don't see color, I just treat everybody the same. So my intent when I say that usually is equality. Usually it's like I'm trying to treat everybody the same as a way for equality. But what I don't know the impact that usually is 
on people of color is, yeah, you'll treat me the same as long as I act like you, keep you comfortable and stay in your cultural box. And um, so there's a condition and I, I don't even know that I'm causing them to have to feel like they have to assimilate um, because, you know, it's question is whose definition of sameness? I treat everybody the same, but whose definition of sameness? Usually sameness around my dimensions of how what keeps me comfortable and what my culture is and things. So that's some some of the consciousness of whiteness, I think, that we are striving to grow. And if we're saying we don't see that, isn't that by definition like denying to celebrate the reality of, of uniqueness and differences and honoring the fact that we do see the world through subjective lens? Yeah, pe pe it's denial some, in a way. Right? Some of my some of my colleagues of color said, "Well, you don't see that. You don't see that I'm a person of color. I feel like you don't even see who I am." And some of those things are really important parts of my identity. And so, in your desire to stay comfortable or to sort of be equal, you're you're ignoring a cute a part of me. So, you know, I think all of us can look at others and see race. Um, it's not like it's invisible, but it's either consciously focused on or unconsciously or our biases unconsciously are never ignoring it. They're always seeing it according to all the research. So it's just acknowledging that. And so somebody else, Bob Terry once said to me, you know, the paradox is to be colorblind and color conscious at the same time. Yeah. How can I both see everybody as human and not focus on that difference and see the difference at the same time and the impact it's having on our interactions in our partnerships. So that's a sophistication that we can actually, you know, tune into is, yes, it's a both and. How can we both see see sameness and see difference at the same time? How can I, I see everybody as an individual and how can I see these groups that are making a difference in people's worlds? And so that we call those the some two of the four paradoxes of diversity, sameness, difference, individual, group. I love that. Yeah, if you can, I'd love to know just more about, you know, dovetailing off what you're just saying now. What does it look like in your teaching and your leadership for white men to become more fully diversity partners? What does it look like? Yeah, you know, like, so, like, yeah what mm -hmm. happens? So, um, well, the like I said, there's learning about we have a culture. We do some exercises around class, you know. Step forward if you belong to a member-only country club. Step backwards if you were ever evicted for rent as a child and stuff. To bring awareness that this group of men uh, have different experiences, varied levels of class. And we redo this set of statements as an adult. You know, now you take regular vacations or you've had to, you've been rejected credit and things. So, you know, we all have some benefits from being white by not having to navigate some things that others are navigating, but we, you know, the economic benefits of being white are unequal. And that's an example of the layers of complexity that we just continue to explore is, is the one thing I think is just how complex this is. You know, it's, it's not just race. It's not just gender. There's class, there's um, age, there's introversion and extroversion in any organizational system. There's like, what's the dominant function? Are we an organization like Kellogg's that has a dominant marketing function? Or are we in a, a defense contractor organization where engineering is the dominant function? What's it like to be an insider or an outsider to the functional diversity in the organization? And age, for sure, is a huge generational difference from being people feel outside if they're too old or if they're too young, they may not feel heard. Um, so we find when we work globally, and we do a lot more work globally in the last five years, this concept of insider-outsiderness varies differently around the world, but it's a good overall concept to help us see what fits in. Obviously, white men go to Japan um, from a cultural lens, they're going to feel like outsiders trying to fit into a Japanese culture corporation may, may still feel aspect of some white privilege in hotels and things being treated with respect and things, but um, be very much tuned into what it feels like to be an outsider. So it's contextually different around the world. What are you learning about what makes the, the men who are finding your work uh, ready? Like 
who who are these men generally and what's mm-hmm. the what's the step that leads them to reaching out to you typically that's a good question i'm i think there's a a curiosity on their part there's like a i know that i love diversity i want to value it but i just don't know what to do in fact i kind of don't know what to do to avoid not putting my foot in my mouth and making saying something stupid so i'm afraid i just kind of sit back and i'm quiet um honestly a lot of the companies that we work with um they have leaders coming through our sessions not necessarily voluntarily because they they a core group of them have found that it's incredibly beneficial um you know if you think about and a lot of a lot of organizations have employee resource groups and so you have groups for african americans latinos asians lgbt there's usually not a white male uh, affinity group and so the framing of diversity too where it's usually taught and led by people of color or women it sort of frames it historically that it's not diversity is not about white men so it's not about it's always focused on people of color's experiences or women's experiences we weren't for example we were working with a an oil company in Europe and they wanted to break the glass ceiling so their their whole process to do that was to develop a state of the art leadership program for women and um, one of the things they did was realized, wait a minute, maybe there's something we need to do with the men on how the men partner with the women. And they had us have a conversation with them. So sometimes it's looking at those mindsets of which people come to diversity and the mindsets that have some people feel like the diversity is only about them and they have to be the leaders and the teachers and carry that burden. And we kind of challenge those assumptions um, early on. Jesse. And then we also, like I said, we give awareness exercises that develop, build awareness around culture um, and the paradoxes of seeing sameness and difference, starting to accept the complexity of it. And then we look at whiteness and what's it mean to be white? How is that different than my colleagues cover experience in and out of work and gender too, being men and eventually being heterosexual. And, and another concept that we talk about is systemic advantage or privilege and by doing by saying that we are not saying that you have it easy at all what we're saying is along those dimensions there are things you don't have to navigate so if you and i just you're able-bodied um, we don't have to navigate our house in a wheelchair or going to work or going to the store and getting in and out of a car in a wheelchair and stuff and that's a privilege that for us being temporarily able-bodied, that doesn't make us bad. It's not something we chose. Um, But we have those kinds of things from being white too and um, people and being male. You know, we don't typically worry about our safety, our physical safety being men near as much as many women do on a daily basis. Um, We can find areas where we might be worried about our safety, but it's not a daily conscious thing. We don't, you know, women are... Men are surprised that women, you know, stick their keys between their fingers when they're walking out to their car so they're ready to um, prepare themselves if they're attacked. It's not something that you and I typically do or are often even aware that that kind of thing is going on in the parts of women. So this concept of privilege is is like um, it's not about what we have and don't have. It's about what we don't have to navigate and deal with. And so. You know, if we've got a lot of women, people of color, other groups at work, and they're navigating these things in and out of work, and we're not aware of it because we're just thinking they're all the same like me, <clears throat> I'm missing a big part of my, in my awareness, what some of my colleagues are dealing with. And so they, they know we're smart and they're like, well, look, how come you can't see your privilege that you aren't aware of these things. You either don't care or you want to hoard your power. And so other people start to project negative intent onto us based on our our not seeing their world and what they deal with. And so they have work to do around questioning and examining their assumptions, projecting negative intent on us. But our work is to use each other inside our group to help us see what we're not having to navigate and get beyond those blind spots so that we can be more empathetic, we can understand more about their worlds and be open to partnering in new ways. And particularly, you know, what's the work for whites to do around educating other whites around 
what it means to be white and our privilege and same for men and same for heterosexuals, et cetera. What's the role for insiders in any organization to understand and help each other understand our insiderness? And how can we use that to extend um, inclusion to outsiders? How can we use that to, um, rather than, you know, make it worse, how can we break those barriers? And, and, you know, here's another concept I think that's really important, Jesse, is we, we often men, white men come to this, uh, looking at, okay, if others are going to gain, I'm going to lose. And we think it's a zero sum game. So, okay. If women are going to get more jobs, people of color, then we're going to get less and we're going to lose. And so, you know, we really challenge that assumption because actually it's a little bit like a, a boat, a rising boat, you know, brings all levels of people up. It's like, actually, I think white men have as much to gain from all this diversity as anybody else. And there's others gain and we gain too. We have more people trusting us. We understand their worlds more. They share more information at work because they uh, actually know we care and we're listening. And, and then we have a different quality of partnerships. Some of the coolest things I've seen is, um, you know, we had uh, Catalyst research our uh, caucuses on the impact at workers at, at Rockwell Automation. And um, the coworkers noticed that these white men listened 33% more for four months after um, their caucus. So there, you know, think about the impact on your customers or on your partnerships. If all of a sudden you're listening 33% more, that's uh, totally, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a change because listening isn't emphasized in white male culture. Action is emphasized problem solving, fixing. And, you know, so we, we, um, have some skill sets that the relational skill sets, the listening skill sets that, um, we get more space to have and that impacts, you know, I see a lot of men change how they relate to their kids, their spouse, and others based on, you know, learning that they are, their culture emphasizes some things, but it doesn't emphasize other things that are critical. Being in our hearts at the same time as our heads, that's not emphasized. That's like rationality is taught as truth and emotion is taking away from it. And other cultures don't do that. It's like, you know, you can be head and heart. So by, by studying this diversity, white men actually get freedom to step out of their cultural box. And that helps them be more effective humans, leaders, parents, spouses. In fact, we've had some clients, their spouses have sent thank you notes to the company. Thanks. I don't know what you did to my husband, but <laughs> I know I don't want the old husband back. <laughs> I love that. I love all that. Thank you. Yeah. And, and encapsulating a big piece in what you just said, I'm so curious to know how you how you make sure that you know an awakening white male doesn't unintentionally be, become a white savior and then and thereby like reinforcing the exact disempowerment that we're trying to get out mm -hmm. of yeah like how do i not become so patronizing that i'm kind of like trying to serve others i mean there's we have to not we have to be ready to not get it all right and to be humble and realize I think a lot of us, as we go through this process, we learn how much we don't know and we become more and more humble about that. And we have to act on what we know and be open to learning and make stepping in new um, stepping in new doo doo and making other mistakes. And how do I turn that into a learning opportunity? So one skill set around that is, you know, Often, if I offend somebody, my my first reaction is to defend my intent. Um, I didn't mean to do that, you know, and then I, I focus on my own innocence. But I'm going to learn more if I just assume, yeah, I am a good guy. I don't have negative intent. But actually, let's focus on tell me how I just impacted you. Mm. And yeah. if I can go into learning about how I'm impacting others and separate that out out from my intent, then I'm going to be in some very powerful learning conversations. And that's, that's, I think, some of how we avoid, you know, um, I mean, sometimes we come out of this process, feeling like we know just enough to get ourselves in trouble. And, and, you know, how can I use my colleagues, my white male colleagues, who I've gone through this learning journey with, 
to continue to challenge each other and support each other. And if I do an interaction that doesn't go well, I can go back and say, here's what I'm trying to figure out. Can you help me with this? I love we that. Often, yeah, I was just, yeah. just going to say I'm also struck by mm-hmm. um, that. This seems like a really powerful takeaway, just the the ability to be conscious and in practice of being curious about my impact rather than immediately focused on my, you know, defending my intent. And I, and I just notice another piece of that is that you, when you, if a man can do that, he can stay in a state of curiosity and in a state of, of um, inviting the other person's power and truth instead of mm-hmm. just claiming mm-hmm. our own. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Curiosity is a very powerful, powerful muscle. So using that curiosity to, um, you know, a lot of times if we engage somebody that we work with, that's a woman or someone, we might jump right into, well, what do you want me to do to fix this? Or how can I, what three things do you want me to do better? That's a question or an inquiry that comes straight out of the middle of the white male culture box. Cause it's about action fixing. And, you know, I have to back up, a a few steps and actually ask questions that are just curious about what's it like to be you? What's it like to be her in this workplace? And, you know, if I ask questions like that, then I'm going to be able to create connection and I'm going to be able to create an understanding because I can't fix what I don't understand. So I need to slow down on the fixing and get a better sense of what is the world like for others out here. And we may discover that they actually don't want us to fix it or need us to fix yeah, it. That's right. <laughs> but just to understand Some, it, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's a case for a lot of things. They really it's a good skill for <laughs> for men and white men to ask, you know, do you want me to fix this or do you just want me to listen? To be able to ask that to our spouses or our colleagues at work and things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you think we've progressed further? Um in racial consciousness or in sexism consciousness? Gender consciousness, that stuff. Um, that's a very interesting, you know, I think, I think we've made plenty of progress in both and we've got plenty of progress left to make in both. I think, you know, it's interesting when, when, uh, Barack Obama was president, I would hear things like, oh, your movies are too old. You don't have, uh, we don't have these issues anymore. We're post-racial society or whatever, but now, um, we have, um, Donald Trump is a white male president and a lot of polarization in our country based on Me Too and a lot of stuff around the police shootings and Black Lives Matter and stuff. I don't hear any comments anymore about this stuff is old stuff because it's so in front of everybody's face all around the country. So I don't know whether – I don't know that the issues really went away as much as they kind of got hidden for a while more. Mm-hmm. And so, Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I think the, I think there's, I think we are in a trajectory where it kind of, it's not a straight line progress in our society. I think it kind of goes back and forth and steps forward, steps back towards overall uh, inclusion. But I think the good news is a lot of corporations that I work with are really committed to it and they're, they're seeing that it benefits them in terms of their relationships with their customers their, their, how they work with uh, colleagues, how they retain employees. And so they see it as pretty clearly directly related to a bottom line. So there's a pretty solid commitment to continue to make progress. What's your vision of where we can go as a global society in terms of diversity and, and consciousness? Um, yeah, no, my vision is uh, where we are. Um, we understand um, that these differences do make a difference. And so we are able to connect on our humanness and notice the subtleties of insider-outsider dynamics. And the insiders can own their insiderness and extend their ability to extend voice. You know, everybody in a group asks, am I in or out? Do I have a voice and influence? And am I appreciated for my skills and resources? And so how do we how do we lead in organizations in a way where everybody at every level says yes to all three of those? Yes, I'm in. Yes, I have a voice and influence. And yes, I'm appreciated for my skills and resources. And so that 
It's creating democratic values in organizational cultures. That is one big stepping stone. I think there's a lot of complex issues to address in your question of how do we create a world that works for all. But yeah. part of it is creating safety, creating voice, creating a, a sense of empowerment. Um, yeah, there's a lot of room for that. There's a lot of possibilities. But how do we, and each of us, as we listen to this podcast and others, you know, how what what is the workspace that I'm in where I can go actually um, practice creating that? If you're willing to share at this stage of the game in your own process, what's your kind of growing edge right now as a white man? Um, good question. You know, I'm I'm uh, I think I'm learning about a lot of international work lately. I just um, did a session in Sydney, Australia, and several in Geneva, Switzerland. I've got one in France and a couple others, and three more in Europe in March, and then Asia. China, India and stuff. I mean, there's there's so much that I'm learning about intercultural, how do insider and outsider dynamics play out differently around the world. Um, that's a really big edge. Um, I think the, um, the dimensions of uh, transgender is newer for me uh, as a dimension that's playing out significantly in our society. So I'm still learning about transgender issues as related to the other issues that I've been familiar with more around that. What does it evoke in you to, to be kind of in these conversations and, and in these dimensions that is challenging? Um, what's it invoke in me? I think uh, fear of doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Um, fear of embarrassing myself. Um, at the same time, I'm pretty used to that. <laughs> um, and, um, I think it evokes, um, you know, one of the most powerful things that a, a white man can do that's been on their journey of learning about inclusion is to openly talk about their learning journey, talk about, you know, when's, when has it gone well, when has it not gone well? And the, I think that, you know, because, um, it's there's just needs to be more space for humanness. There needs to be more space for openness, humility, and courage. And it's reframing in men that vulnerability is a strength rather than how it's typically been seen for years as a weakness. Hmm. And so how do I I tend to share when I'm confused, when I'm not sure about something, and just to openly model that for other men and for other white men and for other whites too other straight people, others around that. It's okay to be in a learning journey. And a lot of folks think, oh, you know, the higher up in the organization, I'm supposed to have all these figured out, all these things figured out when in reality, um, no, I can't, um, I can't get it all figured out. I have to be okay to constantly be in learning mode. And that actually just gives more permission for others to be in their learning journey. Um, but if there's anybody out there white men included, and, and especially honored today, who are in a place of, of resonating with what you're saying, and they and they identify with it, but they're struggling to, to take a step forward in, in their own development. What would your encouragement be? Yeah, know that you're not alone. Um, and know that, um, you know, it's a long-term, life-term journey. It's not like, oh, I do one or two things and do a quick, somehow um, have some quick fix. You know, it's mm. not not going to happen that way. It's a, how can I make this kind of an ongoing way of life? I think um, if they want to watch my TED Talk, um, that, you know, search for my name, you'll find it. It's like, that will give them some languaging around some of the some of these concepts that we've been talking about, and um, it might be something they can watch with another few colleagues and have discussions about. It's a good tool for a little bit of the. It's not very not very many places you can go to sort of explore white maleness in this way in a way that's positive and and um, opening in terms of becoming better people and leaders and stuff. And the other part of that would be the four days to change is the book I wrote, which takes you into 
the white men's caucus and takes you through one of those and gets you to hear the whole conversation that happens and the guys changing their lives as a result of their awareness and how they get out of the cultural box and freedom to do that and how it goes and impacts them in their lives and stuff. So this, those are some tools. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good documentaries and things that are out there these days too, coming on board around race and gender and other issues as well. Yeah. Who are some of the other leaders in the field of, you know, awakening work for white men that you really respect? If you uh, watch um, Jackson Katz has a movie called Tough Guys, and he's been speaking for years around men in association of masculinity with with, with violence. And um, there's a mask we live in as a documentary that uh, the representation project put out around masculinity, even that Gillette commercial that came out of, you know, in the last month or two was, uh, those for some of those folks were in some of our sessions a few years back. And it's a challenging challenge to look at masculinity and, um, you know, more about instead of just saying boys will be boys, how do we use it to, you know, our bonding with each other to create positive relationships with each other and with women, uh, the Representation Project has a video uh, out just like Gene Kilborn on Killing Us Softly. Those are two films on the objectification of women and the impact of that, uh, particularly as it plays out in advertising and in the culture. Mm. Um, you know, Tim Wise's book or um, film White Like Me is a is an eye opening film around a race and again, whiteness and stuff. Um, there are some political stances in it, so um, it's not totally a, a politically free film on whiteness. But is another some of his books, White Like Me, um, Robin D'Angelo's um, White Fragility is a good book too that my office has been reading lately. And you know, why is it that white people are so fragile around race, and why are we so um, triggered by it? And um, you know, some of the challenges of having conversations around race has to do with uh, the white fragility as a, you know, a, a flinch or a back, you know. But I think people need to look at, you know, again, where am I inside? Why am I in? We typically relate in our lives to where are we outsiders? Hmm. Well, really, where are we are insiders too? For instance, white women will typically see, I see all the white, I see all the male privilege that men have that I don't. It's very clear to me. But when you ask them about white privilege, often they don't necessarily see that in themselves because it's invisible, just like it is to white men um, and so for heterosexual privilege, too, for those of us. So we have to understand our our insiderness, which how, or often by definition of being insider, you don't have to tune into it. You don't have to think about it. Right. Um, so being in that sort of self-reflection mode is a is a powerful thing. Totally. Awesome. Thank you for all that. Um, is there anything that we didn't get to that you'd like to speak on? Yeah. I mean, just, I think for me, um, as I, as I alluded to in the men and we do a lot of workshops for mixed race, mixed gender groups and things, but there's a lot of conversations that powerfully that people can have that people don't realize they can have around some of these issues. And they're really about, again, slowing down and saying, what's it like to be you here? Can I look at this through a lens of how is their world different than mine at work? Even if I work, work daily with them right next to them. And I already know there's a lot of commonalities and we typically connect with strangers when we focus on commonalities to connect. And if I only look through a lens of sameness, I don't see the differences in the things that they might be dealing with. And so um, see how um, this journey actually benefits everybody and have that mindset um, is another one that's helpful. Um, Four Days to Change talks about 12 mindset shifts that happen. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, a strength overused is a weakness. It's not that the white male culture is bad as a, as a trait. A lot of our traits in white male culture are the roots of success. You know, the rugged individualism, the action over reflection, the rationality over motion and time is linear. Let's create the future. Just a lot of things. If you dream it, you can do it. And anything that you overuse can become a weakness. So thinking about a culture as strong and where do we overuse it is different than somebody saying a culture is bad. 
no no culture is bad, but it can be overused. And um, so that's one mindset to think about. And um, there's no right way to see things. I'd like to say to most of us, our view of the world isn't wrong. More likely it's incomplete. So what am I not seeing that others are seeing? And I need others to have differing perspectives from me so I get a broader picture. So that's that's another mindset shifts um, is, you know, how can I look at the world through multiple perspectives instead of one way? Um, I love that. So those are yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a couple of times your book, Four Days to Change. Is yes. It, is that right? Four Days to Change and your TED Talk. Are there ways that people can support your work with White Man as Full Diversity Partners, which is for folks listening, you will be able to look at this in the link as well. It's wmfdp.com. Yeah, how can people connect and support that work? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, we do have open enrollment la learning labs for white men, for mixed race and gender groups. We talk about building eight critical leadership skills around these topic areas, which is courage. Yeah, listening for connection as opposed to listening to debate or fix. And, um, you know, having difficult conversations and how to sit with ambiguity as opposed to trying to get rid of it and then end up oversimplifying things. Those are skills. See this as a leadership growth area. We actually see ourselves as a leadership development consulting firm. And uh, we use diversity as a messy topic to grow. Um, those leadership skills. And so, um, yeah, you can go to our website and look at the different programs. There are a lot of things we do are internal to companies um, all over the world now. I just, my colleague just came back from uh, India doing a section for in China before that. And, um, it, you know, it, this these concepts relate differently around the world, but it's some of the same kind of dynamics around insiders and outsiders. So there's some links on our website to other videos and other kinds of studies and things like that, too. Beautiful. Uh, Michael Welp, co-founder of WMFDP. Did I get it right? Got WMFDP. it. That's right. Got it. Yeah. Most people it takes longer than that. Oh, that might have been lucky. <laughs> co-founder of White Men as Full Diversity Partners. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing about your experience and sharing from a position of... Um, really conscientious um, intentionality. And of course, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really interested in, in following the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. Well, it's great to get to chat with you, Jesse. Thanks for the opportunity. To find out more about Michael's work, go to wmfdp.com. My question for you is this. How has this interview changed your idea of what whiteness is and can be? And where in your community can whiteness be an asset for others? This has been the Super Givers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. To hear past episodes, you'll find the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you're inspired enough to write a brief review on one of these platforms, please do. They help. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>